Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. I'm Bob Boylan, and today on All Songs Considered, we have new music and pretty great music from Death Cab for Cutie, and also a conversation with songwriter and singer Ben Gibbard. The song is called Gold Rush, from a new album coming called Thank You for Today. Gold Rush is a song that looks at how our neighborhoods change, and for Ben Gibbard, how he began to think about his emotional attachment to places and memories as time passes and these places disappear. I'm at NPR in Washington, D.C., and Ben is at his longtime home in Seattle. I begin the conversation by playing a minute or so of the new song, Gold Rush. What is this neighborhood? Where, where are we speaking about? We're speaking here about uh, my longtime neighborhood of Capitol Hill in Seattle, Washington. You know, Seattle has been transformed into an almost unrecognizable city over the past, you know, 15 to 20 years with the tech boom and specifically uh, with the rise of uh, Amazon and all the other carpet bagging, uh, <laughs> you know, tech firms that have moved into town to kind of you know, pilfer employees off of Amazon. Uh, And my neighborhood of Capitol Hill, which I've, you know, lived here, lived in for the better part of the past 20 years, um, has gone, undergone, you know, some, you know, really rapid changes, uh, both in the landscape itself, but, you know, the the buildings going up and coming down, but also in the the cultural landscape has changed pretty dramatically as well. So many people will identify with this. There's so many cities uh, that I go to, and D.C. is one of them, <laughs> where I used to see uh, relatively maybe empty streets and friends that have turned into neighborhoods now with condos that I couldn't possibly afford. But on the other side of that is, you know, there are people walking down the streets with baby carriages and their whole n- new lives are unfolding. It's a real split for me in thinking about progress and change. And it is for me as well. A lot of the, the corners of my neighborhood that were less populated, you know, you know, there are now 
restaurants and, and bars and people on the street. And it is both a blessing and a curse. You know, I think also for me, what has been the most painful is just seeing the displacement of both people of color and creative communities from not only this neighborhood, but this city. You know, it seemed like in the 90s, when you juxtapose, say, Seattle and San Francisco, San Francisco is going through their first wave of people leaving, being pushed out, practice spaces that bands played in being closed and turned into you know, whatever they got turned into. And, you know, there was a creative class that was starting to kind of, you know, leave San Francisco for Portland or even Seattle. And, you know, I think in my naivety at the time, I thought that would never happen to Seattle, but it certainly has. And that's, you know, I think one thing that, you know, at least because we've seen those kind of cultural shifts happen so rapidly in other cities such as San Francisco, you know, the people in Seattle are holding on as, as you know, the artists and musicians in Seattle are holding on as, as well as they can. But, you know, it's a it seems like it's somewhat of a losing battle. It's sort of an old story, and, and uh, in the late 70s in D.C., for me, it was uh, the place where, well, it was often artists and musicians who moved into a neighborhood that may or may not have been a, a neighborhood. Like, sometimes it's a, it's a warehouse district where musicians move in, create a creative space, uh, more people start to come to the neighborhood than, <laughs> as the saying goes, the lawyers follow and then the neighborhoods mm-hmm. change. What's happening now feels so extreme and so fast and so rapid. And I don't know, maybe it's just an old way of looking things, but it feels like it has less soul. You know, it's it's really difficult to kind of talk about these things without sounding uh, like, you know, I'm, I'm a get off, get off my lawn type of guy, yeah, exactly. you know, or, I know. I know. or because, because, you know, I was, you know, I moved to Seattle in 1999 that somehow I have precedence over somebody who moved right, to Seattle in, right. you know, 2009. But, you know, I, I think it's true that what gives cities such as Seattle their vibrancy and, and their appeal are the creative communities that exist within the have existed and can and hopefully continue to exist within those cities those are elements that are that make the cities appealing to as you say the lawyers and you know the you know the uh speculators and you know the tech firms who are trying to kind of you know enrich their employees with some kind of you know cultural experience you know in between you know 15 hour coding sessions and one of my biggest fears about Seattle, as it continues to shift and change, is that, you know, you know, San Francisco, I mean, I love San Francisco. It's one of my favorite cities. But I, I keep coming back to, that, back to that example as, you know, my biggest fear in that I mean, you can literally take tours in San Francisco of, you know, here's where the Beats used to drink. Here's the Haight-Ashbury. Here's where the Dead Kennedys used to play. Right. And, you know, at this point, it seems like a, a large part of San Francisco's creative contributions to our, you know, greater American cultural mosaic are... 20, 30, 40, 50 years in its rearview mirror. And, you know, I, I want Seattle to sustain a vibrant creative community. And like I said, you know, I think that we, we are doing our best collectively to protect that. But, you know, when a, a studio apartment is creeping up to, you know, fifteen to $1,500 to $2,000, it's very difficult for someone to be able to make a living waiting tables and playing in a band. No one is going to take a tour in 20 years and say, there's where the Willoughby apartments used to be, right? I mean, right, <laughs> right, right. So the creative community and, and, and the neighbors and neighborhood people who make up the uniqueness of a community, it's hard to have that cohesion because it's very transient when there's nothing to keep you there and nothing original to keep you there. And, you know, I think with Seattle specifically, I think the number I've heard is that the average worker at Amazon stays for two years and then, and then moves on 
quite literally either to another city or, you know, there are people come to work here for about two years and then they bounce for somewhere else as, you know, so they can have this on their resume. And what that seems to be creating in our city is quite a turnover of people who are coming here to work for these tech firms that I think if you're going to just kind of be in a city for what you know is a brief period of time, you're not necessarily going to be that invested in the, the, the community at large. Was there a moment that sparked you to, to want to put, well, I don't know if it's pen to paper or fingers to typewriter keys, but... There have been innumerable moments that made me want to write this song. And as I've gotten older, I'm 42 now, I have become acutely aware of how I connect my memories to... Uh, my geography. Mm-hmm. As the landscape of the city changes, you know, I'll walk down Broadway and walk past a location that used to be a bar I would frequent with friends or, you know, somewhere where I had a, a, you know, a really kind of beautifully intense conversation with somebody that I, I once loved very much. Mm-hmm. And what once was a dive bar is now a Pilates studio or something like that. And I didn't want this to come off as the perspective of someone who is now middle-aged complaining about how the city's changed and how it's not as good as it once was, even though I, that might be my perspective in real life. <laughs> right. What I really wanted to say was, was that I have just noticed that as I've you know, moved into middle age that I connect my memories to my geography to such an extent that it, it is as if I have to come to terms with not only the passage of time, but you know, losing the people and the moments of my life all over again as I walk down a street that is now so unfamiliar to me and so different from how I remember it, you know, even 10 years ago. For me, that's not as much a screw Amazon (laughs) kind of sentiment as it is like this is the natural progression of a city. I mean, cities are in a constant state of flux. They're constantly changing. It is they're very difficult to come back to in the way you might be able to go back to your hometown and fill in the blank, rural Washington, whatever. It can be painful to see, you know, your memories almost uh, so, so unceremoniously, you know, erased from the landscape. <laughs> the song starts off in a way that the actual audio sounds like it's coming from a distant past, just for about the first <clears throat> 15 or 20 seconds of the tune, maybe not mm-hmm. even that much. Can I play a bit and then uh, talk about who produced it, how the sound came to be. Sure. Yeah. I think maybe audio-wise, technically-wise, you might say that it sounded out of phase, but there's something very distant and past about that. Am I looking too far into that? Uh, well, I don't know if I don't. I wouldn't say you're looking too far into it at all. I I wrote the song uh, around a, a, a Yoko Ono sample from a song called Mind Train. Oh. Uh, so you know that the beginning of that that first you know three or four bars or whatever it is yeah. um, is is a sample uh, you know that I flipped from uh, from from Yoko Ono. So I had written the entire I mean I had written this entire the entire song around this. This, you know, sample that I kind of, I think it was like a four bar bit that I'd kind of moved some parts around to kind of make the rhythm, kind of the bass and the rhythm track do kind of something that I was hearing in my head. So I, I think it's very astute that you would you would pick up on that. That's, you know, that song was recorded in, I believe, 1970 huh. <laughs> uh, with with Jim Keltner on drums yeah. and uh, Klaus Foreman on bass and John Lennon on guitar. The song as it exists on Yoko's record, uh, Fly, is about 20 minutes long and just is kind of one of her more... I guess I guess what most people 
when most people think of Yoko Ono's music, they think of the, you know, the kind of improvisational singing, which is certainly a part of her, her music, but is in actuality, you know, a, a fairly you know, small percentage of the larger, you know, body of work that she's put out in the world. But I always love the top of that song because it is just so, it just has such a nice bounce to it. And um, so I wrote the song around that loop and then, you know, we were able to clear it and she gave us her blessing, which is quite a trip. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's interesting. Did the song itself have personal meaning as so much of the song is about memory or was it just a good uh, hooky beat that you wanted to work with? And in actuality, you know, I had, you know, when I was um, writing songs for the last couple of years, moving towards this record, as a lefty living in Seattle, I started kind of delving into some more political material and, you know, wrote some songs that were delving into some, some territory that I, I, I'd never really trucked in. We decided for a number of reasons to kind of to not go in that direction for this album. But the song that, that I had originally written around this sample, this Yoko Ono sample, was something more along those lines. And, and it, it wasn't very good. The lyrics weren't very good. I wasn't, it wasn't something I was really that stoked on. But Rich Costi, our producer, had said, yeah, what's up with that song with, the, with, that, with that kind of loop in it? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's this thing. I don't know. I try to write kind of a political song, but it didn't really work. And he's like, you should really figure something. You should work on that. You should like you should flip. You should do maybe try some other like, do something with that because it's really it's really good. And I'm like, OK, yeah, maybe I will. And I had actually had a song that was t- entitled Digging for Gold that was more of a ballad that used a lot of the lyrics from what became Gold Rush. And, huh. and it was one of those wonderful moments in songwriting where you realize that all of the work that you put into writing songs you thought would never go anywhere was valuable work because I was able to take two songs that on as individual songs were not going to make the cut. But when I took the best elements of both of them, it made something that turned out to be, you know, in my opinion, one of the better songs on the record. Great lesson for songwriters indeed. Yeah, there's never there's never a wasted note or lyric as a songwriter because you just never know when you're going to be able to harvest that note or lyric elsewhere or what it will kind of, you know, move you towards in another song. Who's playing on this record? Is it different from uh, that amazing uh, last album that you did? Yeah, well, we, uh, you know, we have uh, Jason uh, McGurr and Nick Harmer who've been in the band now for very very long time uh you know nick you know was the original bass player jason you know been in the band for since 2002 so i think in all intents and purposes he's right definitive drummer of this band yeah Yeah. uh but when chris decided to kind of uh leave the band in 2014 you know we needed to kind of fill out the band for the live setting without any not really knowing where it would take us for the next album or subsequent Mm -hmm. albums for that matter and we ended up recruiting uh gentleman from Portland named Dave Depper, a wonderful musician, played with a lot of our friends, such as uh, Fruit Bats, and, uh, you know, he's, and he played with Raymond Lamond him for a long time, he's made his own records, and also a gentleman named Zach Ray, uh, who, you know, he's been playing in LA for, on records for, for a really long time, and, and, you know, as we kind of go, went through a, you know, a couple years of touring and hanging out and playing music together, it, it just became apparent that these guys were going to bring some really interesting and, and, and uh, fresh skill sets to, to our record-making process. So we, we brought them into the band as, as proper members, and it was just an absolute joy to be in the studio with mm. both of those guys. I mean, they both, at some point, Rich Costi, our producer, kind of leaned over to me on the couch when we were listening to some playback and just said, 
man, these guys just bring such interesting and you know vast skill sets to this process, and they and they they both bring different things. You know, someone in an interview at one point was like, "Well, it looks like you've replaced Chris with two people." It's like, <laughs> well, number one, you know, I've never seen it as replacing yeah. Chris Walla. He's a he's an irreplaceable creative force, but it's not so much replacing as, you know, the band is moving in a, in a new direction with these new two new individuals who bring their own brilliant skill sets to the process. And, you know, I just couldn't have been happier with how everything's turned out. If I play a little of this song, can you tell us uh, who's doing what, and especially regarding Dave? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a little slidey guitar, is that... Yeah, there's some, there's some slide guitar and there's also kind of like a stabbing, you know, a, a stabbing kind of like, you know, stabbing guitar thing that's kind of happening underneath everything. And this song is one of those songs that's difficult to kind of pinpoint exactly what everybody's playing because there is so, you know, it is it is fairly kind of like, you know, there's like a wall of sound, <laughs> you know, in this in this particular tune. But yeah, Dave, Dave is playing both the sliding guitar and also some kind of stabbing guitar. Stuff. And as Zach is kind of putting in some of these keyboard touches here in the in the in the chorus part, let's listen a little. I'm trying to think of, uh, it, it, I can't tell if it's keys or guitar that's doing that very atmospheric, so maybe it's both. Yeah, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of Zach and Dave both kind of, you know, using these, you know, if, if I recall correctly in this song, you know, the it was a matter of making these patches on, on Zach was making patches on the keyboard and then running, uh, running some of those patches into a four track, cassette four track, <laughs> and then distressing distressing the tape on the on the four track you know and then sending that distressed tape out to uh the board so they don't sound like this is a crisp patch that i created you know on the juno right you know this is like this is a crisp patch that's been just demolished in a in a four track and then sent off in into the mix so now you've got to learn how to play these songs that were pieced together like little puzzle pieces of and maybe it might even be hard to remember who played what on some of an album's worth of of tunes do you go back and listen like how does that process of figuring out you're going in rehearsals how does that figure how do you figure out how to do that well with this album everybody's pretty aware of what they played on the record so it's not so much a problem it's not so much an issue of determining who played what as much as it is how we're going to recreate some of these sounds and you know, thankfully, you know, the technology has progressed pretty dramatically, probably thanks to a lot of people living in Seattle right now, <laughs> who I maligned earlier in the interview. Uh, you know, in, in, in that uh, it's a lot of the, you know, getting back to some of these sounds is much easier than it was, you know, when we first started. Um, yeah, the days of analog synthesizers, you could remember nothing. Yeah. Like I would take, I would take, um, I had a diagram where I would map out all my ARP Odyssey parts, and I, it would be sliders, and it would be a line, and I'd say, oh, the slider was about two-thirds uh, up on the line, and I would draw little diagrams to try to remember what my patches were, but now you can hit buttons and save complicated 
arrays of of tones. It's, it's pretty amazing. We you know we have to not go too far into the tech yeah. of it all. We've we've shifted uh, a lot of the you know bits of playback we've had over the years and and keyboard sounds and things into a new into a new format that is just blowing my mind right now. It's it's almost as if I can't. I can't accept that this is going to work, and I still don't believe it's going to work until we've <laughs> until it's worked for a while. Well, I look forward to seeing the tour and, and listening to more of the record. Uh, I really love what I've heard so far. So thanks for doing this today. Always good to talk to you, Ben. It's always good to talk to you too, Bob. Always a treat. Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie. The new song is called Gold Rush, and the new album, Thank You for Today, comes out August 17th. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's all songs considered.
Did you know that over 15 million people a month listen to NPR podcasts according to PodTracks podcast metrics? Check out all our shows at npr.org slash podcasts. That's npr.org slash podcasts.